You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone and welcome to the 42nd episode of Attaboy Clarence. Hey, I've found a great shampoo. Really makes my hair smell quite much. I don't often tout products, but to all you guys out there who want a manly product, I can wholeheartedly recommend Luster Cream. See, even the name is very macho. Luster makes you think about a gleaming car bonnet or something. And cream, of course, makes you think about shaving cream and the band cream. Yeah, manly! Oh, how about that? Turns out there's an ad for Luster Cream Shampoo. Hang on, fellas. I'll play it for you. Did I say luster cream? I I meant I've been using knuckle duster cream on my hair. This is the ad I meant to play. Man. Man. Knuckle duster cream man. Knuckle duster cream on your hair. I really shouldn't do product placement on this show. That was about as successful as my Uncle Jeffrey's attempts at rapping. We've created a monster, because nobody wants to see Marshall no more. They want shady, I'm chopped liver like, you know? Hey, guess what? Attaboy Clarence and The Secret History of Hollywood have only both made it into the final shortlist for the UK Podcasters Awards. I know, that has happened solely because you guys generously took the time to vote for them both, so thank you very, very much indeed. The final voting round now begins and only runs for a week or so, so if you wouldn't mind, could I please trouble you all to vote once more? For each show. I'll put a link in the show notes. You literally just click on it, wait till it's loaded, and scroll down. Attaboy Clarence is in the final three in the performing arts category, and the secret history of Hollywood is in the society and culture category. It's literally a couple of clicks and you're done. You don't have to enter an email address or anything like that. Vote for them both, please, and tell your friends to vote too. The ceremony is on the 12th of September in Manchester, and I'm actually going to be there, so please vote, and hopefully one of the shows will scoop a prize. Very exciting. Thank you in advance so much. We're going to have a little fun tonight, folks, with a Rinso family quiz. 
first, we're going to take the father of our family, Mr. George McDonald. Now, Mr. McDonald, do you ever do the dishes for your wife? I should say not. Ooh, nice guy. Do you ever take your wife out for dinner? I should say not. Do you ever buy her flowers? I should say not. In your head, do you imagine yourself to be a gentleman? I should say not. Is it customary to have a nose as large as yours? I should say not. When you eventually die, more than likely by being beaten to death, by your wife with her bare hands. Do you think anyone will mourn you? I should say not. Don't you care? Sure I care, but her hands don't get that way. Stupid little man. So I was musing the other day on the fact that the golden age of cinema spawned a thousand memorable quotes that have permeated pop culture for decades. But have you ever wondered what they sound like in German? I should say not. Shush, Pinocchio. Ich mach dich, Mutter, um best in der Welt. Oh, richtig, mein Liebes. Ich nicht einen Darm geben. Dies ist der Anfang von einem schönen Freundschaft. Es ist lebendig, es ist lebendig, es ist lebendig. Vor der Liebe von Gott, es ist lebendig. Toto, ich habe das Gefühl, dass wir nicht mehr in Kansas. Sie wissen, wie man pfeifern, Sie nicht, Steve? Sie legen sich lediglich die Lippen zusammen und schlag. You're welcome. My mother thanks you. My father thanks you. My sister thanks you. And I assure you, I thank you. few thank yous this week. Firstly, to Frank Butterfield, to Jessica Walney, to Justin Sowers, and to Mary Freer, who each donated to the podcast through the website. Thank you all. You are very generous people. Those funds have gone straight into my beer glass. I mean, towards the running costs. Thank you, folks. You're aces. Have a Canterbury each. Canterbury. 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 Got an awesome email from one Courtney Blazon. First up, thank you for the email, very kind. And secondly, how cool were your parents? Courtney Blazon! Courtney, Courtney Blazon, the girl with the superhero name. Fighting for the rights of every man, woman and child. With her x-ray specs and a knowledge of French wines. I would go and see that movie.
When sound began to sweep through Hollywood in the late 1920s, a vast brigade of Hollywood stars found themselves unable to make the transition. This wasn't always due to the fact either that the voice didn't fit the face. The fact is that for years, movie stars have been taught to act without speaking, which generally meant a heightened, more exaggerated style of movement where gestures and facial expressions took the place of words. Of course, when sound came along, there was no need to articulate so wildly. Words could take the place of actions. For those unable to adapt to this new naturalistic style of performance, words and actions could often be too much. For those skilled enough to adapt quickly, though, words could complement the performance. One of those fortunate enough to make the change successfully was the dashing star of today's show. He was Hollywood's premier mustachioed heartthrob before the world had even heard him utter a word. A suave, dark-eyed man who, to the world's surprise, possessed one of the screen's most exquisite voices. I'm going like the As Joe Franklin later wrote in 1959, he had a beautifully modulated and cultured voice. Even the Encyclopedia Britannica describes him as having a resonant, mellifluous speaking voice with a unique, pleasing timbre. It was this voice, along with a natural on-screen magnetism, that saw him become one of Hollywood's earliest icons of the 20th century, although nowadays he's often unfairly overlooked when it comes to screen icons. Therefore, it gives me great pleasure to dedicate this week's show to the most resonant and mellifluous of Hollywood's early voices, a man who always brought a 200% increase in style and class to the films he appeared in, and to one of only a handful of screen stars who can honestly lay claim to the rank of superstar of both silent and sound cinema. Mr. Ronald Coleman. We'll go to 1937 first and The Prisoner of Zender, where Coleman starred alongside a gallery of Hollywood's finest, Madeline Carroll, David Niven, Raymond Massey, C. Aubrey Smith, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Mary Astor. This is the swashbuckling tale of Rudolf Razendil, who's journeyed to the fictional European country Ruritania to do some fishing. While he's there, he's accosted by two soldiers who are astonished by Razendil's resemblance to the king of Ruritania, Rudolf V, who happens to be hunting with the soldiers. Who is this gentleman? He's by way of being a relative of yours, sir. Relative? What do you mean, relative? It is something for which you cannot entirely blame me, Your Majesty. Oh? Who is to blame? If I may hazard a guess, Your Majesty, I would say that the blame might lie equally between your great-great-great-grandfather, Rudolph, and my great-great-great-grandmother, Amelia. What? Right by heaven! The man's a Rassendil from England. England? 
Bratzendil. And since Amelia's time, sire, the Elfberg face crops out on one of us every now and then. <laughs> well met, cousin. Yes, it transpires that Razendil is a distant cousin of the king of Ruritania and resembles him identically, which is extremely handy because the very next morning, King Rudolf's brother, Black Michael, has the king kidnapped, hoping to seize the throne. In order to foil Black Michael's plot, Razendil must pretend to be the king taking the reins of the kingdom and carrying on in his place. But things are complicated when Black Michael finds out that Razendil is an imposter and when Razendil falls in love with the Princess Flavia, who's been betrothed to King Rudolf. Now, Razendil finds himself in the unique position of romancing the woman who's going to marry the man he's pretending to be, or something. Such a relief to have you to myself for a moment. All day long I've been on parade cheered at, waved at, stared at. Not a chance to say. Say what? It's enough to make any man lose his head a bit. I'm crowned king. I meet the loveliest, most beautiful woman. That isn't what you used to say. You used to call me toe-headed little scarecrow. No. I hope you slapped me. I did. And once I kicked you quite hard. Where? In the garden. <laughs> To defeat Black Michael and restore the king to the throne, Razendil must foil Black Michael's evil plot, discover the whereabouts of the imprisoned king, cross swords with Rupert of Hentzau, the most dangerous man in the country, and try not to fall too deeply in love with the unattainable Princess Flavia. So I have a love-hate relationship with the prisoner of Zender. I fell in love with the Screen Director's Playhouse radio version of this story starring Ronald Coleman and his then-wife Benita Hume in the starring roles. And seriously, I used to listen to it every single night at bedtime. It is without a doubt my favourite bedtime story. So one day I thought to myself, I really need to see this film and bought a very expensive copy on VHS and had the thing shipped to me from the other end of the United States. Now, I'm not saying the film isn't charming. It is. It is a supremely grand affair. A David O. Selznick production, which should instantly tell you how grand and ornate and faithful it is. You never doubt for one moment that you are in a royal palace and that you are watching the nobility. It is an extravagant film, from the sets down to the costumes. But as much as I admire the film, I do not seem able to fall in love with it. It is often described as a boy's own adventure committed to film. And while that's kind of true, boy's own adventures were a lot snappier than this. The cast are great. You can't lay the blame at their feet. And there is an abundance of charm on display. But the exciting parts are far too few. And crucially, it lacks a sense of humour. Ronald Coleman is, as always, great, but he doesn't get to do much until the final 20 minutes, apart from make professions of love to Madeleine Carroll. You have a commoner pretending to be a king, one of the classic situations, and ripe for a little satire. But instead of mining that situation to its potential, you simply have him gazing into Madeleine Carroll's eyes and looking tortured. 
The only bright spark comes in the form of Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who plays the villainous Rupert of Hensow with a wicked laugh and a gleam in his eye. He's a brilliant villain, always wisecracking and scheming and looking like he's having a great time in the process. It's often sold as a swashbuckler, but there were better buckles being swashed by Errol Flynn at the time. As a romance, it's a bit too serious, and as a fish-out-of-water story, it really wastes its potential. Therefore, while I do recommend the film, I find myself in the unique position of telling you that the half-hour Screen Director's Playhouse radio adaptation of it is actually better. Go and seek that out. Next up, we're going to 1950, where Coleman played a bookish intellectual who uses his vast brain power to beat the system in Champagne for Caesar. Gee, Mr. Bottomley, you sure know a lot. I not only sure know a lot, my dear Frosty, I know everything. This is the tale of Beauregard Bottomley, an unemployed PhD physicist who goes for a job at the Milady Soap Company, the sponsors of the most popular quiz show on television, Masquerade for Money. For the one or two people who may not be familiar with the program, Masquerade for Money is a real-life costume party, and here's how we play the game. Yes, sir, the audience appears in a costume representing his or her favorite person, object, thing, or animal. Contestants are asked questions about the person or thing their costume represents. We pay $5 for the first question, $10 for the second question, and so on until the sixth question, which pays the lovely loot of 160 clinkers. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, and at any time during the evening, a contestant can pocket the dough and go home happily. After being humiliated in his job interview by Milady's boss, Bernd Waters, played by Vincent Price, Beauregard Bottomley decides to get his revenge by appearing on Masquerade for Money. <laughs> are you supposed to be a bookie? <laughs> Seriously, what are you supposed to represent? I am the encyclopedia. And the monocle? A Britannica. Oh, in that case, I can ask you anything about anything, and if we can ask you anything about anything, I will ask you anything about anything. I'm sure if you ask the questions, that'll be a very limited field. <laughs> Well, uh, may I ask your name? You may. Well, well, what is your name, then? Beauregard Bottomley. Would you, would you mind repeating that again? I would mind very much. Oh, Beauregard Bottomley it is, then. Well, on to the questions. But first, here are your six cakes of my lady soap. The soap that removes the dirt like any other soap. <laughs> here we go for the first question and five dollars. What is the name of the first animal described in the Encyclopedia Britannica. The aardvark, spelled double A-R-D-V-A-R-K. The aardvark is an anteater. That is absolutely right. You are now the proud possessor of five dollars. By the way, you said an aardvark is an anteater. Is he also an uncle eater? <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, the aardvark is an uncle eater, uh, but he only eats the uncles of the ants. <laughs> The problem for the Milady Soap Company is that Beauregard Bottomley is a genius who knows the answer to any question in the world. Five dollars becomes ten, ten becomes twenty, twenty, forty, and so on, until soon he's answering questions that will net him tens of millions of dollars. 
desperate to stop Bottomley before he ruins the Malady Soap Company, Burnbridge Waters puts a devious plan into action to distract Bottomley, involving a seductive nurse, a drunken parrot, and a certain Mr. Albert Einstein. Well, what an absolute treat this film is. Firstly, the concept is brilliant. How do you outfox a brain box who can answer any question? This was made during television's boom in popularity when Mr. and Mrs. America were staying away from the cinema so that they could watch shows like this in the comfort of their own home. In fact, they didn't just watch in the comfort of their own home. There's a scene early on in which we see a whole street full of people meeting in front of a store window and watching the television there as though it was a natural gathering place in the evenings. They even arranged to go there as part of their daily routine. Do you mind if we cut the lesson short tonight, Gerald? We'll make it up next time. Beauregard and I are going to a show. Oh, that's all right. I'll get ready. This almost becomes a kind of late-entry Frank Capra movie. It's very witty, very charming take on the small man rebelling against this rich, miserly money corporation. The whole quiz show framing device is a fantastic idea, and when the film kicks off in earnest, we, the audience, almost become part of the quiz show audience. You really begin to root for Bottomley and hope against hope they can bring down the dastardly money men. It does fall a little flat in its second act, where Celeste Holm tries to use her feminine wiles to confuse Ronald Coleman, and Vincent Price's character, Burnbridge Waters, is very annoying. But all in all, a genuinely intriguing, very charming little fairy tale that acts as a wonderful time capsule for the period when television sets became the new churches for the masses. Last up, in my humble opinion, the greatest romance movie ever made. I started this podcast in January of 2014, a few weeks after I'd begun writing for the website attaboyclarence.com. And I remember one of the first things I wrote for the site was a feature entitled The 10 Best Classic Romance Movies, which for a long time was the most popular thing on the site, far more popular than the podcast for a long time. It's still there, actually. Well, if you make it through the top 10 all the way to number 1, you will have found yourself at Random Harvest, a film that I judged to be the most romantic of the Golden Age, a viewpoint I insist upon to this day. Our story takes you down this shadowed path to a remote and guarded building in the English Midlands, Melbridge County Asylum. Grimly proud of its new military wing, which barely suffices in this autumn of 1918 to house the shattered minds of the war that was to end war. Our story begins at the Melbridge Asylum, where a shell-shocked amnesiac is recovering after being gassed in the trenches of World War I. He's been christened John Smith by his doctor, Dr. Benet, who hopes that one day someone will come to the asylum and claim this shy, polite and hopeful man. There are some people here who are very anxious to see you. Mr. and Mrs. Lloyd. Lloyd. Uh, Lloyd. They mean anything to you? The son was reported missing in 1917 at uh, Arras. 
Now, don't pin your hopes on it. You may be the son, you may not. We'll soon know. My... My parents. There you see, my boy. You speak well enough when you want to. It's just a matter of confidence. You've just got to get back your confidence. One night, Smith is walking the grounds of the asylum when a commotion occurs in the town. The armistice is announced and the war ends. The celebrations take over the town and in the confusion, Smith wanders out of the asylum grounds and into the celebrating masses. Confused and frightened, he is discovered by Paula, a singer who takes pity on him. Can I help you? I thought you weren't feeling too fit, so I followed you. Don't mind, do you? You look tired out. Been walking about for hours. Well, how about a brandy and soda just to pull you together? I'm going to have one. Should we go over to the home pub just across the road? It isn't long before Paula and Smith fall in love, but when word goes around that an amnesiac veteran has escaped from the asylum, Paula, realising that Smith is the man they want, spirits him away to the south coast of England, where he gradually begins to heal. Although the memory of his former life has not returned, Smith becomes a normally functioning man again, building a life for himself and Paula in the sleepy country village. I'm asking you to marry me on a, on a cheque for two guineas. Well, Smithy, don't ask me, please. I might take you up on it, I'm just that shameless. Paula. I've run after you from the very beginning, you know I have. I've never let you out of my sight since I first saw you in that little shop. Never do it, Paula. What? Never leave me out of your sight. Never again. Oh, Smithy. You do mean it? You... You do want it? Really? More than anything else in the world. My life began with you. They marry, and it isn't long before they have a son. Life seems to be golden for the Smiths, and then, one day, Smith receives a job offer and must travel to Liverpool, reluctantly leaving behind his wife and newborn son. He leaves the station and crosses the road, when suddenly... Smith is struck down by a car and falls unconscious. And when he awakens, he's no longer John Smith, but Charles Rainier, the man he was before being gassed in the trenches of World War I. The wealthy, aristocratic Charles Rainier, heir to the vast Rainier fortune, and who can now no longer recall his life as John Smith. I now have to leave the plot description at this point. The events I have described to you take up the first 60 minutes of a 126-minute film that I refuse to elaborate on or spoil for those of you that haven't seen it. This is, hands down, one of my favourite movies ever. This epitomises everything I love about classic cinema, the lush 
production values, the twisting, breathtaking plot, the shimmering gloss, the magnitude of its star performers, the overwrought emotion, and the sheer, unadulterated class that glows in every single frame of the film. This was Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer firing on every single one of its cylinders. I will never forget the first time that I watched this film. I knew nothing about it. I just knew it was a very well-respected movie from an era I adored, and which starred a pair of performers that I very much liked. And then the film began to play out. I would love to tell you all about my reactions as the film went on, at which points I couldn't breathe, at the plot revelations that made me stand up in shock. But, of course, I can't without spoiling the film for those of you that haven't yet been subjected to its majesty. It's a film of a million small moments, all of which blend magically together, from Una O'Connor's little tobacconist lady to the squeaking gate of the rose-covered cottage, from the violins that sing the film along in its first hour, to the quite honestly heart-stopping twist that occurs at the 75th minute. And everything that comes afterwards, this is, in my opinion, the golden age of Hollywood's most perfect romantic drama, containing the most intoxicating alloy of love, tragedy, pain and joy. My wife, Hannah, and I actually watch this film every Valentine's Day because no other film makes you want to clutch the one you love more than this one does. If you've seen it, then you'll know why. And if you haven't seen it, then you have an exceptionally thrilling roller coaster to ride one day in your future. Well, when it comes to radio, we are well served by Mr. Coleman, who was a prolific radio performer. There are an embarrassment of riches to choose from, and so I present to you today a double bill of Mr. Ronald Coleman. From 1950 to 1952, Coleman and his wife, Benita Hume, starred in one of the most sparkling of radio shows, the ongoing adventures of Ivy College's president and his wife, William and Victoria Hall, entitled The Halls of Ivy, which was one of the more intellectual comedies of its day. This was as charming and funny as it was challenging, taking time out from being a simple romantic comedy set around a school to deal with some very real issues of the day in a rather impressive and progressive way. It's one of the shows I return to the most often, and not only because the performances are so wonderful, but because it has such a bright and clever outlook and was conceived in such an intelligent way. The episode I've chosen for you tonight is one of the more famous in its run, an episode entitled The Leslie Hoff Painting, that I very much hope you'll enjoy. Following that is the Screen Guild Theatre's fantastic adaptation of Champagne for Caesar, which is a brilliant version, so do stick around for that. I shall see you after this marathon bestowing of radioness. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin presents The Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. When there's beer on your mind, your best thought is Schlitz, the beer that made Milwaukee famous. 
people like the taste of Schlitz than any other beer. That's why Schlitz is the largest selling beer in America. And now, the Halls of Ivy. Welcome again to Ivy, Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA. When a student manages to distinguish himself in any field, usually one of the first persons contacted for a statement is the president of his college. That's because under normal conditions, this learned head is supposed to know all about the activities and achievements of his thousands of charges, past and present. So, at the home of Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, who is the president of Ivy, and his wife Victoria, the former English actress... We find a reporter from the Ivy News, Mr. Crane, whose first remark is... You're the logical one to give me the information I need for a Sunday feature, Doctor. The news item has already been in the daily. I imagine you saw it. Whatever the news item was, Mr. Crane, it's highly unlikely that I did see it. Lately, the the press of work has kept me from the press, so to speak. But uh, this article was about one of your students, Leslie Huff. Uh, Leslie Huff? Oh, yes, yes, Huff. Uh, Huff? Yes. Yes, what was your reaction to the news about his award? Well, I, uh, it's, um, I, uh, I, well, it's quite possible that my wife can tell you even better than I how I, uh, reacted. Victoria? Well, you were completely surprised, bowled over, flabbergasted, absolutely dumbfounded. Uh, I, I think that conveys my attitude quite adequately, dear. Thank you. Struck all of a heap, you're welcome. Yes. <laughs> I certainly am. I mean, was. Struck all of it. After all, it isn't every day that an Ivy student gets an award for the, from the National Art Foundation for his painting entitled Portrait of My Buddy, Drawn from Memory. Is it, dear? Oh, oh yes, I see. <laughs> Good heavens. No, of course it isn't. No. I, uh, Thank uh, you, Vicky. Thank you. I guess the painting is giving the critics a field day. They're pretty divided in their opinion of it, but you know how critics are. I think they draw lots to see who sneers and who cheers. <laughs> Well, critics are an odd breed, Mr. Crane. They seem to thrive on a reverse plan for existence. United they fall, divided they stand. (laughs) I've often heard it said that a critic is a man who gets two seats on the aisle, one for himself and one for his opinion of himself. (laughs) Have you seen Huff's original painting, Mrs. Hall? No, no, just a reproduction. But even that captured the character and purpose that the artist gave to his subject. It's really a remarkable study. A sort of composite of all the young men who have ever fought in a war. Hope and disillusion, fear and courage. Young faces with old eyes. Yes, it is a remarkable study. But I, well, I I wondered. Is there some question in your mind about this portrait, Mr. Crane? Oh, no, no, no. It's just that, well, uh, of course, you've met Leslie Hobb, haven't you, Doctor? Well, I... Uh, No, Mr. Crane. I'm afraid that, uh, in spite of my wife's valiant effort to save me from disgrace, I'm going to be forced to admit that I know little about this matter. I've been terribly involved in other affairs. Oh, gosh, that is a surprise, Doc. I can usually count on you. 
You're my personal newsreel theater. I know, and, and I'm sorry to let you down. Perhaps Mrs. Hall can give you some of the information you need about this young man. No, darling, I can't either. I don't know anything at all about him, only what he's done. Well, then I'd suggest, Mr. Crane, that we delay this interview until tomorrow. Unless today is the deadline for your Sunday feature. Oh, no, sir, that can wait. Uh, we never make up our Sunday paper until Thursday. We serve it hot. <laughs> Good. Good. Uh, Vicky, suppose you call this uh, Leslie Huff and ask him over this afternoon. Then tomorrow, I will be a veritable wellspring of information. And will probably gush forth with enough material to last for several Sunday features. Swell. We'll appreciate any information you can give us, Doc. All right, and we'll expect to see you tomorrow about the same time, right? Right. Uh, uh, Dr. Hall. Yes? I've been reading a lot lately about the situation in endowed colleges, that uh, rising costs are creating something of a crisis on the educational front, and uh, off the record, uh, well, how does Ivy stand? Got any trouble? Well, like her sister's schools, she's gained a lot of weight around the uh, budget. <laughs> But it's, it's nothing that can't be held in shape by a good, firm foundation. <laughs> uh, preferably a large-size endowment with a two-way stretch. <laughs> now, I really must say goodbye. Okay, Doc. Be back tomorrow. Goodbye, Mrs. Goodbye. Hall. No, don't bother. I know my way out. <laughs> How do you like that? A large-size foundation with a two-way stretch. <laughs> you really wowed him with your wit, Doctor. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Bob Tudhunter Hope, the academic joy boy. Yes. Let's get jivey with Ivy. Yes, my dear, but, uh, but neither joyful nor jivey, I'm afraid. After all, when a young man brings such honor to Ivy, the least I can do is to know about it. Victoria, much as I appreciate your helping me out while Mr. Crane was here, you should have told me before. Mm, I shouldn't even have helped you. No? Well, why not? When you married me, my darling, didn't you promise to love, honor, and get me out of tight situations? Yes, and you promised to keep me, cherish me, and listen to me, like when I told you all about Leslie Hoff yesterday. Ah, that look of polite attention you were giving me always means you're not hearing a word. You may fool some people, Doctor, but not Tootsie Cromwell. She's quite acute. Now you're supposed to say quite acute what? Oh, indeed. <laughs> Pursued for infringement by Fibber McGee. No, thank you, my dear. <laughs> no, but seriously, don't you think it odd that Crane should have asked me about the state of the college? Especially since it is in such a state. Oh, nonsense. Well, I think Mr. Crane's question was prompted by interest. And I'm not nearly as worried about the state of the college as I am about the state of its president. You need some breakfast. Breakfast? Well, yes, it's something you eat. Oh. A healthy little habit you seem to have gotten out of lately. No, thank you, dear. I'm not hungry. Now, Tony, I'm going to be firm about this. It is now ten o'clock, and I happen to know that you've been up since dawn. In fact, this morning you beat the rooster by a full crow. <laughs> well, I'll just have to be more careful. It's the early worm that gets the bird. You know, wait, 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 wait a minute. Where are you going? Back to my study to wage bitter battle with the budget. To see if our sinking fund is going down for the third time. All right, but you're going to have breakfast. I'll bring you some on a tray. No, no, darling, really. I couldn't eat a thing. Buttered toast, dear. That fifth piece was a little dry. Uh, no more, thank you, darling, but I do feel much better. Ah, 
I can now tackle the famous Hall method for reducing the cost of running a campus with renewed energy and vigor. <laughs> oh, did you call Leslie Hoff? I wasn't able to reach him. I'll keep trying. It, it's strange. I don't believe I've ever heard of him before this award. And he's an extremely talented young man. I know I've never seen him. Oh, Mr. Hoff is an artist. He probably spends his time starving to death in the garret of some first-rate fraternity house. <laughs> he lives at one of the cooperatives, which one I don't know. At any rate, he won't have to starve any longer. That award carried substantial cash value. Which is what all good awards should carry. Cash or some valuable tribute which is readily negotiable at a pawn shop. <laughs> no move, dear. I get it. Often wondered if the three golden apples over a pawn shop door represented the fruits of improvidence, or did the Medicis, those Florentine loan sharks, believe? It's for you, Toddy, Mr. Wellman, and he sounds quite happy for a change. Oh, well, I'm sure there's nothing to be alarmed about. He probably just heard that his best friend took a heavy loss on the stock market, <laughs> or that an aging aunt just had her mortgage foreclosed. I should think he. Hello, Doctor Hall speaking. Uh, Doctor Hall, I have news. Well, that's good. I hope. It is good news. Uh, that is excellent news. Have you ever heard of Wilma Marshall? Well, good heavens. Did she win an award, too? Uh, what's that? Did she what? Oh, it's nothing. Uh, go, go ahead, Mr. Wellman. Uh, what about Wilma Marshall? Uh, Mrs. Marshall is calling on you this afternoon. Calling on me? But I don't think I know her. And you must realize that I'm very busy. Uh, not too time. busy to see Mrs. Marshall. The reason for her uh, visit to you, Dr. Hall, is to discuss an endowment, a gift, which she proposes to make to Ivy. You don't say so. Is she an alumna? No, she's never attended Ivy. However, she wishes to give us $500,000, Dr. Hall. She would... A half million dollars? Yes. And since I won't uh, be able to be there, uh, other matters, I hope you will choose to be uh, reasonable. Well, why should I be unreasonable about half a million dollar gift? <laughs> That's it. Why should you? <laughs> I, I seldom fly into a rage over donations of that magnitude. There is no cause for levity, Doctor. Particularly now, when we all know that Ivy can use it. The, 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 the money, Ivy. Now, now, wait, Mr. Wellman. What is wrong... Mrs. With... Marshall will discuss the matter with you. I, uh, the board only asks that you be, uh, well, uh, far-sighted in the matter. I'm sure you will, if you know what's good for you. Uh, well, uh, uh, goodbye, Doctor Hall. Uh, goodbye, Mr. Wellman. Well. What is it, darling? Or is it anything you can discuss with a wife? This afternoon, we are going to receive a visit from a Mrs. Wilma Marshall. Well, that's nice. Do we know her? No, but as Wellman said, we will. Uh, remember that good, firm foundation I spoke of earlier? <laughs> the large size endowment with the two-way stretch? Yes, I... Oh, Toddy, you don't mean that Mrs. Marshall is coming here to give us a fitting? Better than that. She's about to girdle us with $500,000. <laughs> well... That ought to help put things in shape. Oh, darling, I'm so glad. What a break for you. I hope so. Only I'm awfully afraid, Vicky, that this girdle is the old-fashioned kind. You know, the kind with strings. When there's beer on your mind... Your best thought is Schlitz, the beer that made Milwaukee famous. More people like the taste of Schlitz than any other beer. That's why Schlitz is the largest selling beer in America. 
If you're the sort of person to whom the pleasures of the palate are as much a part of good living as an automobile or a two-week vacation, then more than likely you'll recall your first taste of Schlitz beer. There's something about the taste of this great beer that people never forget. And the reason for it, one of many reasons, is this. Extra mellowing. Yes, for the taste you remember with pleasure, Schlitz beer is mellowed three times. First, Schlitz ages the barley till it's just right for malting. Second, Schlitz ages the malt till it's just right for brewing. Third, Schlitz ages the beer till it's just right for you. This extra mellowing has such wonderful results that more people like the taste of Schlitz than any other beer. This extra mellowing helps to explain why Schlitz is the largest selling beer in America. and we find Dr. Hall and his wife, Victoria, in the living room of their home on Faculty Row, anxiously awaiting the arrival of Mrs. Wilma Marshall, a prospective donor to the college. Where can she be? She's over an hour late. Oh, I'm sure she'll get here, dear. After all, how fast can you walk carrying half a million dollars? Incidentally, <laughs> did I tell you I was finally able to reach Leslie Hoff? He'll be over this afternoon. Fine. And, Toddy, guess what? Wait, 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 wait. Wait a minute, Vicky. There's a car coming. No, darkness. Hmm. Now, what were you saying, dear? Um, oh, I was going to tell you that... Uh, uh, Vicky, Vicky, wait, 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 excuse me, wait. Another car? Yes. No. Yes, it's stopping here. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> Vicky, how do I look? Like a million dollars. Well, I'll settle for half a million. <laughs> you are excited about this, aren't you? Excited? <laughs> of course not. Seeing $500,000 walking up the path doesn't even give me a tremor. Look, see? Steady arms, steady hands. Whoops, steady hall, there she is. <laughs> oh, she does look formidable, doesn't she? Like a Cunard liner, needing six or eight tugs to nudge her into her slip. <laughs> ah, what an indelicate remark. What? Oh, slip, yes. Well, I, I meant in a nautical sense, of course. Yeah, well, it was, too. Very nautical. <laughs> After this, I wish we'd be a little more... Ah, she blows. I'll man the gangway and pipe her aboard. But don't let go of the tow rope until she's tied up to the dock. That's precious cargo. Oh, yeah, oh indeed. I'll be right back. <laughs> Vicky. I love you. Don't think our life would have been if we hadn't met... Yes, it were all one that I should love a bright particular star and sink to wed it. Remember who wrote those lines, my darling? There's a countryman of yours, a man named... Dr. William Hall. No, dear, William Shakespeare. Oh, I beg your pardon. William, this is Mrs. Marshall. How do you do? I, I, I'm afraid I was daydreaming a little when you... I quite understand, Dr. Hall. Yes, of course. Sit down, won't you? Thank you. I, um... I presume Mr. Wellman told you why I'm making this visit? Yes, he did mention the reason. That I suppose you're wondering why I decided to make an endowment to this particular college. <laughs> I rarely question the motives which prompt such generous acts, Mrs. Marshall. My curiosity is usually smothered in gratitude. I have here a small reproduction of a painting. Are you familiar with it, Dr. Hall? Uh, may I see it? I, uh... 
No, no, I don't believe that I am. William, that's Leslie Hoff's painting, the one that received the award. Of course. Yes, portrait of my buddy drawn from memory. This doctor is the reason I propose to, to make a gift to Ivy Cottage. But I, I don't quite... Do, do you know the artist, this Leslie Hoff? I haven't the slightest idea who he is. I must confess, Mrs. Marshall, that I, I'm a little confused. If you don't know him... The painting is of a boy I knew well. My son, Jean Marshall. Oh. He was killed in the war. Oh, I'm sorry. It's over now, and I'm not asking for sympathy. The point is that Jean's friend, his uh, buddy is a student at Ivy. Because of that, my donation to the school will be made in my son's name. But didn't Jean, your son, have a school of his own where his name might be more appropriately perpetuated? No, he was always tutored. Jean was a shy boy. He was rather afraid of people. He didn't make friends easily. And the acquaintances he did make were hardly fit to... Well, I thought it advisable to keep him at home. I see. Is uh, this portrait of Leslie Hoff's uh, a good likeness of your boy, Mrs. Marshall? No. Well, it, it's unmistakably his face. But it hides a man. A man I don't know. Can never hope to know. May I see the picture again, Mrs. Marshall? I haven't had a chance to look at it closely. Why, certainly. Here, Doctor. Hmm. It's a striking portrait, isn't it? Interesting. The lower part of the face is almost obliterated by shadow, or but just a portion of the mouth. And the eyes, the highlighting of the eyes is, is, is quite remarkable. But how well Hoff has brought out the qualities of a young man who, who has suddenly found himself. Hmm. It's a portrait of a boy who has come to the end of a dream and who is shocked at having slept so long. Dr. Hall, I believe that the young man who made this portrait really knew my son, possessed a knowledge about him that his own mother never had. Well, there are few friendships as strong as those founded on great dangers shared. And I imagine you'd like to meet Leslie Hall. <clears throat> well, I've given that much thought, Mrs. Hall. I believe now that I should like to meet him. It was splendid because he's coming here this afternoon. Oh, but... Well, I wish I'd known. I'm afraid it'll be difficult. Oh, probably not as difficult as you think, Mrs. Marshall. Surely there must have been a great bond between Jean and Leslie Huff. I think it will give you a good deal of satisfaction to meet him. Yes, but let's get to the point of the endowment, Dr. Hall. It's not a thing I care to discuss in front of others. No, of course it isn't. I find that reticence in these matters is not unusual, Mrs. Marshall. I came prepared to write a check for $500,000 in the name of Ivy College. Oh, William, isn't that wonderful? If one condition can be agreed upon, Dr. Hall. And what is that condition? My money must absolutely not be used to provide scholarships for... <laughs> for certain races and creeds. Oh, no. If um, you know what I mean. Oh, yes, yes, Mrs. Marshall. I do know what you mean. And you're making this donation in the name of a son who... who died for the principle of equality? And... We don't have to discuss this further, Mrs. Hall. I'm sure that Ivy College can find use for my money 
in such a way as not to violate the terms of acceptance. Isn't that so, Dr. Hall? Uh, no, Mrs. Marshall, it isn't. I cannot accept it under the conditions you impose. You... I beg your pardon? Even if I were inclined to close my eyes and my ears and my mind to your stipulation, which I am not, the founding fathers of this college would rise in righteous anger. The cornerstone of this institution was laid when this nation was young, when the concept of personal freedom and individual integrity was fiercely defended and willingly died for. It is the principle with which this school was inaugurated. That principle is not for sale, Mrs. Marshall, not even for half a million dollars. Very well, then. That's that. We won't discuss it further. I'll be going, Doctor. Oh, but, but, but surely you'll wait and see, Leslie Hoff. I hope you won't let my refusal interfere with your meeting your son's friend. Yeah, that must be him now. Shall I go, dear? Uh, no, no, I would rather. Mrs. Marshall, will you excuse me? Surely. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Doctor. I, I'm Leslie Hoff. Well, come in. Come in. I'm glad to see you. And congratulations on a fine piece of work. Ivy's proud of you, and so am I. Well, thank you, Doctor. Uh, do you have company? Am I interrupting? No, 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 not at all. In fact, I'm extremely happy you're here. Our guest is someone I know you'll want to meet. Jean Marshall's mother. Jean Marshall? Is that someone I'm supposed to know, Doctor? Well, I... I should think so. <laughs> I'm afraid when it comes to names, sir, my memory's not so good. I... I don't think I know who Jean Marshall is. But you're painting that portrait. Oh, the boy. So that's his name. Jean Marshall. Dr. Hall, I, I never knew. To me, he was the boy. Well, this is, this is a turn of events I didn't quite anticipate. Come with me, Leslie. I want to introduce you to the, um, uh, the boy's mother. If you don't mind, sir, I, I'd rather not. Well, why not? Well, the boy, Gene, uh, uh, did you say? Uh-huh. Talked a lot about his mother. I, I think it would only upset her to know that I was her son's friend. No, I don't think it would be wise for me to meet her. Of course, that's up to you, Leslie, but uh, if you'll trust my judgment, I think it would be the wisest thing you ever did. All right, if you say so, Dr. Hall. Let's go. Good, good. Come on, follow me. Uh, Victoria, this is Leslie Hall. Hello. Uh, my wife, Leslie, and this is Mrs. Marshall, Jean's mother. You? You are Leslie Hall. When we spoke earlier today on the phone, Leslie, I, I didn't have a chance to tell you how terribly proud we were to hear of your award and how much we liked the painting. It's superb. Well, I'm pleased that you like it, Mrs. Hall. Mrs. Marshall, I value your opinion, too. Well, please don't hesitate to be frank. How long did you know my son? Just one night, ma'am. One long, long night. It was during a raid. We were both running for cover. We hit the same foxhole. You... You only knew him one night? There are times during a war, Mrs. Marshall, when one night can be as long as eternity. That's right, Doctor. And this particular night seemed an eternity. 
You get to know a man pretty well when time crowds you like that. When death is sitting in the game, you, you sort of like to lay all your cards on the table. Mm, I know. I had a friend once who said you talked about everything, anything, to cover up the fact that you were scared. And did you talk together? You and Jean? Yes, we talked. The boy told me about you, Mrs. Marshall. And I told him about my mother. He described his ancestors. I described mine. <laughs> he was proud of his great-grandfather who fought in the Civil War. I was proud of mine who was freed by it. We even exchanged recipes, believe it or not. Got ourselves so hungry we could hardly stand it. <laughs> Funny the things you talk about in the foxhole. Your boy grew into a great man that night, Mrs. Marshall. I sat and watched him, his face half hidden in shadows. Only the nose and eyes lighted by the enemy flares. And I listened to him tell the things he planned to do when he got out of the war. They... they were good things. And you never saw him again after that night? No, Mrs. Hall, never again. It's amazing that you could paint a picture of a man you saw only by gunfire. I'll never forget how you looked. The portrait was only an attempt to immortalize a man whose name I never knew, but to whom I owed everything. What do you mean by that? There was an enemy patrol. The noise covered their approach. I, I don't never know exactly what happened. I, I suppose you never do. But the boy was my buddy. I'll spare you the details. But you see, ma'am, he gave his life, saving mine. Hardy, Mrs. Marshall gone? Uh, yes, dear, she just left. Ah, what a lonely woman. I didn't think I could ever feel sorry for her. But I do. Awfully sorry. Don't you? Not anymore, darling. I think she learned a great lesson in understanding today. You do? I wonder. She was... Well, what was that you got in your hand? Uh, this is the proof, Vicky. A check for $500,000 made out to Ivy College. No strings attached. <laughs> I guess she discovered that life itself is a little like a college. You don't learn much by attending only one class. The American Broadcasting Company brings you the Screen Guild Players. Tonight, it's Ronald Coleman, Audrey Totter, Vincent Price, Barbara Britton, and Art Linkletter in a gay and bubbly bit of nonsense, Harry M. Popkins' hilarious comedy, Champagne for Caesar. You know, show business has always liked to kid show business. Movies kidding radio, radio kidding movies, and both of them sometimes kidding television. Tonight we've got a combination of all three, and believe me, they add up to a lot of fun. 
just for laughs, the Screen Guild players bring you another radio premiere, Champagne for Caesar, starring Ronald Coleman, Barbara Britton, Art Linkletter, Audrey Totter, and Vincent Price. Ladies and gentlemen, you have just met Caesar the Parrot, a sort of feathered candidate for Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, Caesar really loves his champagne, but he isn't getting much of it these days. You see, he's living with Beauregard Bottomley, who found him leaning against a lamppost one night. And Beauregard is a man of the mind, saturated with knowledge, a very brilliant man, very unemployed. He can afford only such simple pleasures as an evening walk with his sister Gwen. And that's precisely where we find them now walking along a neighborhood street until a crowd on the sidewalk blocks their way. So many people, Beauregard. I wonder what's happening. Nothing's happening, Gwen. It's the herd instinct, typical of all primitive mentalities. Oh, it's a television show in that radio shop. They're looking at the television. <laughs> I revise my previous estimate. This indicates no mentality at all. Nauseating. Nauseating my eye. That happy Hogan's a dream boat. And here he is now. That joyful, jolly, jestful, jiving joker. That mad, merry, mirthy mincer of magpies. Whatever that means. That querulous, quizzical quintessence of query, happy Hogan himself. Tonight we're going to break it down, kick it around, and throw money all over it. Uh, look, Gwen, shall we bid a bon voyage to this dreamboat and quietly steal away? Oh, it's one of those quiz programs, Beauregard. Let's watch it for a while. It might be fun. Yeah, it's exciting. The contestants come out dressed like anything they want to be, and then he asks them questions. For the one or two people who are not familiar with our show, let it be known that Masquerade for Money pays $5 for the first question, 10 for the second, and so on, up to the sixth question which pays the lovely loot of 160 clinkers. If the contestant wishes to stop at any time and pocket the money, he may do so. And here's your first contestant, Happy. Bring her on. <laughs> Hello. Hello. And who are you? I am Cleopatra. Oh, let's not make an ass out of ourselves. <laughs> Did you get that, did you? Oh, that guy kills me. Not a bad idea. What's your name in real life, Cleo? Where are you from? My name is Lona Kransky, and I'm from Brooklyn. Well, I, I fail to see why the location of birth should be met with applause. But she comes from Brooklyn. Oh, well. Oh, pipe down, will you? Shh. Now, tell me, Cleo, are there any little ones running around at home? Only one. My husband. Ah! All right, here comes the first question, Cleo. Down what river did you float on your barge? Gee, that's a tough one. Uh, the Nile. Oh, 
now the possessor of five drachmas. A drachma, that's a one-dollar bill with a picture of a mummy on it. <laughs> Nothing. Well, all right, second question. Mark my words, this will be a tough one. What Roman general was that way about you, Cleo? Christopher Columbus. Uh, could it be uh, Mark Antony? It not only could be, but it is. And incidentally, it was not very nice of you, Cleo, because of the time Mark Anthony was engaged to a Roman girl by the name of Vanilla Flavia. <laughs> oh, that's very funny. I think he's cute. Gwen, how can you stand this drivel? It's unintelligible, unfunny, and undermining the tastes of the public. Look, I thought I told you to pipe down. No, but I can't let this go on without a word of warning. This man is the forerunner of intellectual destruction in America. If the knowledge that two and two make four is greeted with deafening applause and prizes, then two and two making four will become the top level of learning. Say, you think you know a lot, don't you? I not only know a lot, my dear fellow, I know everything. Good night. Mr. Bottomley, the employment agency sent you to us? Uh, yes, they did. Oh. May I ask why you wish to work for Milady's Soap? Well, for one thing, the agency sent me over. And for another, I have no alternative. I need a job. Oh, oh very well. Come along. Uh, I must explain, Mr. Bottomley. This whole idea originated with our top executive, Mr. Burnbridge Waters. It's all very hush-hush. And we refer to it simply as Operation Lather. The salary will be $40 a week. Satisfactory, though not conducive to luxury living. Uh, this way, please. In here. Yes? Operation Lather. Go right in, please. Mr. Waters is waiting. Roger. Uh, Mr. Waters, my name is Bottomley. I, uh, that is, the people at the employment agency... Oh, I'm sorry you have to wait. Mr. Waters is not with us. Well, but isn't that Mr. Waters at the desk? Oh, yes, but he's concentrating. He's on a higher plane. We must wait till he returns. Well, uh, am I to understand he can't see us or hear us? That's correct, but it won't take long. He'll be back. Ah, there. His eyes moved. He, he's coming back now. Uh, uh, uh Mr. Waters... Well, sit down. My time is extremely valuable. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Waters, uh, this is Mr. Bottomley. He, uh, uh hopes to join Milady's family. Uh, here is his application, sir. Uh, PhD, physicist extraordinary, master's degree at the age of 13, author of neutrons and croutons. <laughs> Mr. Bottomley, all this means one thing to me. You are a dreamer and I am a doer. Do we have that straight? Uh, quite. I have an idea, and I want to know what the average man thinks about it. When we find out what he thinks, we'll change his thinking. Change his thinking. Magnificent. What I'm about to tell you is very top secret. It ranks with the discovery of electricity and the invention of the wheel. Yes. I am thinking of putting on the market an all-purpose cake of soap that will also be used to clean teeth. I see. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a sort of a foam-at-the-mouth approach. <laughs> Mr. Bottomley, you would have started tomorrow. <laughs> that would have been fine, sir, but aren't you using a rather strange tense would have? No, sir, I am not. I cannot stand humor, and you are humorous. Well, it was only a pleasantry designed... Jeffers, to... why is he interrupting me? I didn't indicate that I had finished talking, did I? No, sir, I saw no sign of it, sir. Oh, I beg your pardon. Mr. Bottomley, you are the intellectual type, and I despise the intellectual type. You are an improvident grasshopper, and I am an industrious squirrel, and nothing personal. Well, just a moment. What I have to say is quite personal. 
If you are a squirrel, you're a very nutty one. <laughs> you are also an unmitigated pompous ass, and furthermore... Uh, it's I... uh, no use, Mr. Bottomley. He is no longer on this plane. He cannot hear you. Oh, he can't, eh? Well, then he is, if I may say so, and I would like to see someone stop me. An expensive moron. Shall we steal away now? <laughs> Do I genuflect upon leaving or just face Mecca? <laughs> <laughs> this way, please. Report on Operation Lather, sir. Mission completed. Oh, if Mr. Waters returns, I'll be in my office. Roger. Um, excuse me, miss, but would you mind telling me... Oh, hello. If... Here's your autograph picture of Happy Hogan. Happy Hogan? Every visitor must take one, company rule. He's cute. Don't you think Burnbridge Waters discovered him? <laughs> the greatest discovery since the wheel. <laughs> mm. Did you get the job? May I congratulate you? No, I didn't get the job, but... But congratulations may be in order. Really? For what? I believe I have the greatest idea since the discovery of Happy Hogan. All right, here we go with our masquerade for money, and here's our first contestant. Good evening. Well, this is a new one on me. What are you supposed to be, sir? I am the encyclopedia. Well, why the monocle? Uh, Britannica. Oh, <laughs> I guess then that means we can ask you anything about anything, and if we can ask you anything about anything, I guess we will ask you anything about anything. Well, I'm sure if you make up the questions, that'll be a very limited field. <laughs> well, you told me there'd be nights like this. You know, after all, I'm supposed to make the jokes around here? Well, why don't you? Oh. Uh, may I uh, ask your name? You may. Well, then, what is your name? Beauregard Bottomley. <laughs> would you mind repeating that? I would mind, very much. Oh, very well. Beauregard Bottomley it is. And here we go for the first question. What is the name of the first animal described in the Encyclopedia Britannica? That is the aardvark, spelled double-A-R-D-V-A-R-K. The aardvark is an anteater. That is absolutely correct, and you are the proud possessor of five dollars. By the way, you say the aardvark is an anteater. <laughs> is he also an uncle eater? <laughs> uh, yes, as a matter of fact, the aardvark is an uncle eater. But he only eats the uncles at the ants. <laughs> All right. Here's your second question. And from here in, Mr. Bottomley, I suggest we confine ourselves to just questions and answers, since we have a limited time on the air. Bottomley, Bottomley, I know that man. He's a disappointed office seeker, an assassin. I tell you, he's a saboteur from life, boy. <laughs> you better watch the show, Mr. Waters. He just answered his sixth question. Well, you certainly did all right for yourself, Mr. Bottomley. And here is your $160 in good old folding money. Well, uh, don't you want it? Why don't you ask me another question? Don't be nervous. Well, I mean... Show it's our policy that. Uh, Who uh, on earth? <laughs> all, all right, all right. Never let it be said that the lady didn't always treat the customer right. So here we go for three hundred and twenty dollars. What is the Japanese word for goodbye? Sayonara. Uh, not to be confused with cyanide, which is, of course, goodbye in any language. <laughs> that is right. I mean, that is absolutely correct. 
And for the first time in the history of our show, a contestant has nicked us for $320. Congratulations, Mr. Bottomley, and here is your money. No, thank you. Now, wait a minute. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, our time is running. No more time. No more questions. Well, that's all right. I'll come back next week when you have more time. Huh? Sure. Well, come back next week. Come on. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Your encouragement is an inspiration. I'll be back next week if they allow me on the program. <laughs> Now, look, Mr. Waters, about this bottom... Uh, perhaps you'd better wait, Mr. Hogan. I believe Mr. Waters is on a higher plane. Oh, up on cloud 11 again. Hey, you think a hot foot would bring him back? Oh, please. Oh, what's the difference? He can't hear us. Shh, I believe he's coming back now. It's the greatest idea since The Walking Man. I'm glad I thought of it. Uh, Mr. Waters... <laughs> this bottomly now. We'll stretch him out for five or six weeks by asking him only one question a week. We'll pull out all stops on publicity, build up our audience and our Hooper rating, generate a terrific sales campaign, and then knock him off. If you ask me, I think we ought to pay him off right now. No one asked you, Mr. Hogan. You are paid to entertain, not to think. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me, but I'll hate myself for this in the morning. Mr. Waters, I want to make a point. This is a dangerous precedent you're setting. It weakens the size of our top price, $160. And not only that, but... Mr. Waters, it's no use, Mr. Hogan. He's gone again. <laughs> Two weeks and it's paying off. Our Hooper rating is up five points. Four weeks and our sales have almost doubled. Six weeks. I think the time has come. Beauregard, I don't understand you at all. There you are, sitting calmly and reading a book. And tonight you're answering a question for $40,000 or nothing. Please take it if you win tonight. Please take it, Beauregard. I will not. But don't you realize what we can do with $40,000? Well, we can do twice as much with $80,000, four times as much with $160,000, oh, eight times as much with $300,000. I give up. I just give up. Six. Gentlemen, gentlemen, I'm proud of you. These questions aren't just hard, they're mean. <laughs> Tonight we will destroy hold it. Hold it, hold it. Here comes Bottomley now. Good evening, gentlemen. Well, if it isn't the brain. <laughs> Brought your other sister with you tonight, eh? Well, that's silly. I'm the only sister he has. Don't you remember me, Mr. Hogan? We met that first night, the first time Beauregard was on the program. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't even recognize you. Well, that's understandable. She spent the afternoon at the beauty parlor. Uh, Bottomley, I don't think you've met our sponsor, Mr. Waters. This is Beauregard Bottomley. Oh, yes, I've met Mr. Waters in a well-upholstered torture chamber where he practices witchcraft over a bar of soap. <laughs> Mr. Hogan. Uh, oh, i got to go warm up the audience. Excuse me. Mr. Bottomley, when this is all over, I shall be very happy to interview you again for the same job with the same result, of course. Uh, my dear Mr. Waters, I must confess that in the last few weeks I've had a pang or two about nicking you for all this uh, loot. Uh, now I must thank you for appearing on the scene. 
Your presence gives me the ruthlessness to go on. Mr. Bottomley, <laughs> it is I who should thank you. Through you, we have A, increased our Hooper rating, B, received a lot of publicity, and C, more than doubled our sales. E, D, I couldn't hear better news. E, I hope the sales will increase even more. And F, it would frighten you if you knew why I felt this way. Uh, now, excuse me, please. I believe I'm on. And now we come to that portion of Masquerade for Money, which is reserved exclusively for Beauregard Bottomley. <laughs> will he be right? Will he be right or will he be wrong? All the world wonders for tonight. He is shooting for $49,960 or nothing. Well, how's our grown-up quiz kid tonight? Feeling a little nervous, Mr. Bottomley? Well, why should I be nervous? After all, it's your money. You people are losing it. I'm only winning it. <laughs> Aren't you a little nervous? <laughs> I've seen the next question. You'll be sorry. So why don't you stop all this nonsense and ask me the question? All right, all right. You, Mr. Bottomley, have only to name the second emperor of the Ming Dynasty. That's all. <laughs> of course, it was Chu Yun-wen. He was dethroned by his uncle, who became the third emperor. Strangely That's enough, enough, the third that emperor You win, emperors. you win. <laughs> My dear, you have your pencil and notebook. You are prepared to take down everything I say. Oh, yes, Mr. Waters. Well, then let us proceed. Gentlemen, there's no denying the fact we have a Frankenstein on our hands. A very well-informed Frankenstein. He must be stopped. That is absolutely correct, B.W. Now, the question Don't is... use that word, question. Gentlemen, our course is clear. We have had our $40,000 worth of value from this man. I will pay him off, and that will be the end of it. That's what you think. Mark my words and bruise my body. Beauregard Bottomley will be back next week shooting for 80000 bucks. 80000 bucks and 160000 the next week, and then... Oh, you jughead! Thank you, thank you, and good evening, Burn Bridgewaters. <laughs> See you around, kids. Sit down! Hogan, you're in this right up to your options. You hadn't let him continue on the show? I let him continue. You were so crazy about it, you had three trances and a vision and came out of it shrieking with happy laughter. I reversed my decision. Well, I had no decision to reverse. You think I enjoy being Joe Schmo from Kokomo every week, having this joker top me with his insults? I don't like it any more than you do. What do you expect me to do, go out and shoot him? No, we mustn't start thinking like that. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, there is only one way. We must bore from within. Now, what do we know about Beauregard Bottomley? Where is he vulnerable? Nowhere. That's just the trouble, Chief. And believe me, we've investigated thoroughly. No weaknesses, no woman, no nothing. No hits, no runs, no errors. <laughs> he lives in a bungalow court with his sister. She teaches piano. And that's about all we could... Be piano, wait a minute. That gives me something. Hogan, you mean that you have got an idea? I think so, boss. Um, want to treat me to a few piano lessons? You mean, uh, reach bottomly through his sister and then... Oh, of course, <laughs> of course, go right ahead! <laughs> Thank you.
I'm working my way through grammar school, ma'am, and I wonder if you'd buy my book. It's called How to Be Happy, Though Hogan. <laughs> May I come in? Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Hogan. My brother isn't here. Best news I've had today. I came to see you. Me? May I ask why? Well, I understand you teach piano. I've always wanted to learn how to play. <laughs> Does he play too? <laughs> then there's hope for me. Now, how do we go about this thing? Well, in the beginning, two lessons a week are usually sufficient. Not for me. I want two a day. I want to make rapid advances, and I want to start right now. Mr. Hogan, there's such a thing as going too fast, even for you. Oh, I'll slow down going around the octaves. Shall we begin? <laughs> Sacrilege. Let's get loaded. Let's get loaded. Hey, that's brilliant. <laughs> Miss Bottomley, I happen to know the nicest little bar. I thought you came here to learn piano. <laughs> Miss Bottomley, I'll tell you how it is. I've had you on my mind since the minute we met. Would you believe me if I told you I'm crazy about you? I certainly would not. Then I won't tell you. I'd rather show you. Mr. Hogan, please, I... Please, you, you, you mustn't... You can't... <laughs> Mr. Hogan! <laughs> <laughs> How about that little bar I mentioned? Oh, well, no, but I do think I need a little air. Oh, fine. We'll go for a ride. I have my car just outside. And... First, perhaps we'd better talk. Mr. Hogan, let's be frank with each other. I know you're playing up to me in order to get information about my brother. In other words, I'm a heel, huh? Not in other words. Same words. But you're going for a drive. You'll let me kiss you. Because I like you very much. You like me, even though you think I'm a heel. Yes. Isn't it awful? It sure is, but I love it. <laughs> Why don't we change our plans a bit? What do you suggest? Well, with talking, I can get anywhere. Let's have some more kissing, and then we can talk. Hogan, my boy, welcome. I understand you had a most successful night. I sure did, Mr. Waters. I knew you would do it. I am seldom grateful to anybody, but I certainly have to hand it to you. Put it there, happy boy. Put it there. <laughs> Burnbridge, it is I who should shake your hand. It was your idea, and it turned out great. Uh, it's true that my ideas are great. I cannot deny that. But there is also greatness in carrying greatness to its greatest. <laughs> uh, what's the score, happy boy? Well, in the first place, Beauregard Bottomley has no weakness. His personal behavior is above reproach. There are no vices. There's no woman. You know why? He wants a woman who's both brilliant and beautiful. What are you telling me, boy? Why did I congratulate you? Why did you let me shake your hand? <laughs> did he agree to stop? Well, his sister wants him to stop. Great, great. The old Hogan touch. You convinced him. I didn't have to. She's felt this way all along. However... She doesn't have the slightest influence on her brother. Uh, then you've messed up my great idea, you knuckle knob. What are you so happy about? I fell in love with Gwen Bottomley. In love? How dare you fall in love on my time? This is dishonest, treacherous, and un-American. <laughs> get out of here. Wouldn't you like to know what Beauregard's up to? Don't get out of here. Stay here and sit down. Thanks. Oh, miss? Yes? Stand by with pills. I didn't say I needed my pill. Not now you don't. You will in a minute. You know what Beauregard Bottomley's after? Your blood. My blood. About $40 million worth. Uh, He's after every nickel and dime, every oh, no. building and factory, every oh, no. bar and flake of soap, every stick of furniture, oh, everything that belongs to my lady soap oh, company. Please. Oh, my. Oh. Mr. 
waters. Your pills. Oh, the blue ones, quick. No, the pink ones. No, the purple ones. Or the green or the lavender. Oh, don't stand there fumbling. I'll take them all. The frequency of a bat's shriek is somewhere around 20,000 cycles a second. That is absolutely correct. Hey! The molar of an Asiatic elephant has 24 plates. That is absolutely correct. Hooray! The upper Cretaceous deposits in the Elbrus mountain region of Persia consist of limestone, locally hippuritic, and fossiliferous miles, often bituminous. That is absolutely correct. When they told me he was in the plant, Mr. Waters, I didn't dare have him thrown out. You are quite right, my dear. There he is, over by that soap vat. Yes, leave this to me. I'll handle it. Mr. Bottomley? Oh, hello, Waters. Just looking through the plant, you know, against the time when I shall take over. Mr. Bottomley, I have the greatest idea since the invention of fire. I will clean the world physically, and you will bathe it mentally. It's as if Caesar had joined forces with Alexander the Great. Yes, they were 300 years apart. Never mind. I am prepared to offer you... You are prepared to offer me nothing. Frankly, Burnbridge, you are living on borrowed soap flakes. <laughs> you know something, Beauregard? I like you. Naturally. Hmm. I like you because you're an honest man, and because I like you, I must warn you. You are headed for trouble, Beauregard. You're about to link arms with misery. But aren't you going to ask me why? No. And then I will tell you why. <laughs> Beauregard, it's monstrous to have money. It's withering to be wealthy. It's disastrous to be loaded. Disastrous? Yes. Do you know what I have to show for my life's work? Tell me. Pills. Green pills. Blue pills to be taken after yellow pills. Purple pills to be taken before orange pills. Nerves and ulcers, nerves that dangle, ulcers that shriek. Ah! And money doesn't buy a new stomach. Right. It cannot make you sleep at night. Right. Oh, you were so brilliant. Taxes, stocks, bonds. Payrolls, upkeep, bills. Beauregard, don't let it happen to you. I don't want to see it happen to you. How can I ever thank you, Burnbridge? Don't thank me, Beauregard. Just stay as you are. Walk out of here into the sunshine of a carefree world, wise in the knowledge that I have bestowed upon you. For it is my sincere conviction that the only way to be happy is to be poor. My dear Burnbridge, I see your point. I am about to make you the happiest man in the world. <laughs> Get out of here, you thief. Get out this minute. And when I take over two weeks from now, let's do it quietly, shall we? No reception, please, and clean up the plant, won't you? Good day. I tried to be nice to you, but you wouldn't have it. Well, I'm warning you, Bottomley, this is war. This is war! <laughs>
We will return with the second act of Champagne for Caesar in a few moments. When an object is completely in the dark, we can't see it at all. Place one light upon it, and it appears flat and distorted. Throw another beam upon it from a different angle, and it begins to assume its true three-dimensional shape. And that's the way it is with the day's news, too. The more viewpoints we can get, the more apt we are to reach the true picture. So for a fuller, three-dimensional understanding of the news, hear Robert Montgomery speaking on your ABC station tonight. We continue transcribed. Now, the American Broadcasting Company presents the Screen Guild players in Act Two of Harry M. Popkin's Laugh Riot, Champagne for Caesar, starring Ronald Coleman, Vincent Price, Art Linkletter, Audrey Totter, and Barbara Britton. And now it's war. War, do you understand? Open and declared, grim and ruthless, the war against Beauregard Bottomley. In his headquarters at Milady's Soap Burnbridge Waters, Command-in-Chief of the Milady's Forces calls his general staff together for a vital announcement. Hello, warriors. I am proud to announce that I have found a secret weapon that will at last destroy Beauregard Bottomley. <laughs> Bottomley has been infallible up to now because his mind is undisturbed. And what I ask you disturbs a man's mind? <laughs> A woman, naturally. <laughs> Our intelligence reports that there is no such lovely disturbance in Bottomley's life because he's looking for perfection in a woman, too. Well, my friends, I have found such a perfect creature, beautiful and brilliant, studious and uh, stacked. She's a corn-fed Mata Harry named Flame O'Neill. Excuse me, Chief, but uh, how will she get to him? How will this flame get to burn him up? Uh, happy, my boy. You'll help us there. You have a date with Bottomley's sister tonight? Well, yes, I'm taking her to a concert. Good. Now, that means that Bottomley will be alone. And according to our latest report, he has a bad cold. <laughs> well, then, gentlemen, here's our battle plan. He lies there alone, racked with pain, I hope. And in walks Florence Nightingale, alias Flame O'Neill. <laughs> I tell you, it's the shrewdest strategy since Alexander took his cohorts out and led them to victory over his... Yes? Come in. The door is open. Who is it, please? I'm afraid I can't get out of bed. I have a cold. Mr. Bottomley? Oh, oh I, I'm sorry. My sister isn't here. If, you, if you'll come back tomorrow, perhaps. I didn't come to see your sister. I came to see you. I'm a nurse. But I... I didn't order a nurse. I'm a present from the Billings, Montana, Beauregard Bottomley Fan Club. Really? What a charming, practical present. Of course, the whole country is disturbed about your illness, but in Billings, they really took it to heart. And, well, here I am. My name is Flame O'Neill. Sweet chick! Yes. <laughs> Miss O'Neill. It will be difficult to express my appreciation to you and the fan club, but... Uh, give me your uh, hand. Oh, no, really, there's nothing seriously wrong with me. I... Mm, uh, pulse rather rapid. Oh, it isn't really. It's, it's just And you seem I, so warm. 
Uh, running a temperature, I suppose. No, 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 no. I, I took it a while ago. Well, and don't worry. We'll get you cured. Uh, first, I think we'd better straighten your bed. Then you can get to sleep and get some rest. Oh, no, no. I never go to sleep before midnight. But then you don't usually have a cold before midnight, do you? Want to give me that book? No, no, I, I always read myself to sleep. Oh, now, don't be a difficult little boy. We'll just put this book over here and that. Oh, it's Schlesinger's new one. With mine through darkest matter. Interesting, but somewhat violent, don't you think? You, you've read this book? Oh, you're not the only one who reads, Mr. Bottomley. Now, let's turn out the light. No, 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 J just a moment, please. Um, I, uh, I, I take it you don't agree with Schlesinger. Well, I share his opinion that mind can influence matter, but I find it difficult to go along with the theory that we may someday be able to move concrete objects like tables and chairs just by sheer force of will. Oh, yes, yes, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And uh, <laughs> Schlesinger has a tendency to go overboard. However, from the philosophical approach... Now, Mr. You... Bartley, you're ill, you know. Let's tuck Schlesinger in for the night. There we are. Lights out. And remember, if you need me, don't hesitate to call. Pleasant dreams. <laughs> Pleasant dreams, indeed. No intention of dreaming. No intention of sleeping. If I want to read, I shall read. <laughs> you can be stuffed, you know. <laughs> Schlesinger. Mm, she's quite well informed. Attractive, too. Charming. I like her. In fact, uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, Miss O'Neill, nurse. Yes? Uh, Miss O'Neill, it just occurred to me. There isn't any place for you to sleep. Oh, I'll be quite comfortable on that couch over there. You, you're going to sleep in here? Naturally. Uh-oh. <laughs> Don't let it disturb you. You mustn't think of me as a woman. Think of me as a nurse. Of course, yes, the Schlesinger thought block is... Now, don't you worry about me at all. You won't even know I'm here. Good night, Mr. Bottomley. Good, good night. <laughs> Asleep. No, I'm not. You, you're, you're not asleep? I just told you I wasn't. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Oh, nothing. <laughs> Something I said or did, perhaps? <laughs> no, no. No, really, it's nothing. Nothing at all. But one doesn't laugh at nothing, does one? I, I mean, uh, does one? I just happened to think of something that struck me funny. Well, what? Oh, I couldn't tell you. I really couldn't. Forget it, Mr. Bottomley. Good night. <laughs> And contrary to the poetic concept, I think there is something as beautiful as a day in June. A day like today, for example. What do you think? Beauregard. Beauregard, you weren't even listening. 
Uh, I'm afraid I was thinking. Um, Flame, uh, may I ask you a question? Three nights ago, when you entered my life on the wings of mercy, you laughed before you went to sleep. Why? <laughs> oh, I can't tell you that. Hmm. Then at least tell me one thing. Did it concern me? Yes. Hmm. <laughs> Beauregard, my conscience bothers me. Oh, why? Well, now that your health has been restored, I consider it unethical to stay employed any longer by the Billings, Montana, Beauregard Bottomley Fan Club. Oh, but I still don't feel right, you know, when, when I turn abruptly my back. I'm sorry, said. Beauregard. This is our last day. Last day? Well, yes, as patient and nurse, perhaps, but, um, uh, well, ca can't we see each other when we're healthy? <laughs> but of course. I rather hope we'd see each other from time to time. I would miss terribly the brilliance of your wonderful mind. Isn't there anything else you might miss? Uh, what I mean is, um, um, I, I admire your mind too, but it, it, it doesn't stop there. <laughs> what do you really mean, Beauregard? Uh, well, um, uh, Flame, uh, I, I find myself quite inarticulate when it comes to this sort of thing, but... Um, yes? Uh, 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 would you have dinner with me at my place tomorrow night? mean, Miss O'Neill, that at this very moment he's expecting you to arrive for dinner? No. He expected me an hour ago. <laughs> he's tried to call me 13 times already. <laughs> of course, I haven't answered the phone. Oh, gorgeous, wonderful, how beautifully nasty. <laughs> I won't let him reach me until tomorrow afternoon. My explanation will be vague and uneasy. Yeah. He'll be angry. <laughs> I'll cry. He'll beg my forgiveness. And he'll end up puzzled, uncertain, and confused. Oh, of course, of course. All this has happened to me many times. <laughs> it's such a lovely way to become confused. Uh, possibly after this is all over, you and I can become confused together. Uh, oh, pardon me, your phone is... Well, what am I saying? Let it ring. <laughs> Operator, are, are you sure? Well, you're, you're positive you rang the right number? Oh, I see. Thank you. No, 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 not at all. The least she could have done was telephone, or send me a wire, or get in touch with me somehow. Unless, of course, something's happened to her. Maybe I ought to call the police. Uh, well, it's about time. Darling, what's happened? Nothing happened, honey. Mr. Hogan. Beauregard, you're slipping. You just called me mister. Where's Gwen? My sister has gone to see a motion picture, and if I knew which one, I assure you I would not reveal it. That's all right. I'll wait. I'll... Hey, will you look at the banquet table? You wouldn't be expecting a day, would you? Oh, too bad. She stood you up. Hmm. Have you had your dinner? Yeah. Care for another? Yeah. Sit down. <laughs> Flame, Flame, what happened? Beauregard, how nice of 
you to call. I was just thinking of you. Flame, where have you been? What happened to you? What happened to me? Well, what do you mean? Beauregard, what are you talking about? May I remind you that we had a date for yesterday evening? We did not. We had a date for today. We had a date for yesterday. I remember distinctly. Well, even if I did make a mistake, that's no reason to raise your voice. Why didn't you call me? I was home all evening. I called you 53 times. <laughs> Maybe I was in the shower. <laughs> The 53 times I called were scattered from 8.10 to 12.15. Well, I hope you don't think I was in the shower for four hours. Well, of course not. But you just said so. I did not. Maybe you called the wrong number. That I consider an insult. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Please, please. Flame. Flame, die. I, I didn't mean to hurt you, darling. Oh, I beg of you. I implore you. Stop crying. Please. Maybe we better not see each other anymore. Our relationship was so beautiful, and now one little misunderstanding. Oh, would it, Flame, would it be so easy for you not to see me anymore? It wouldn't be for me, I assure you. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be for me either. Oh, then, then, darling, let's not quarrel anymore. I'll see you this evening at the broadcast, won't I? Say you'll go with me. Well, if you'll promise not to be silly anymore. Oh, of course. Oh, darling, you're, you're sweet to forgive me. And, and please don't cry anymore. I'll pick you up a date. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye, my dear. Call up some games. Let's have a party. <laughs> you know, Caesar, she seemed very reasonable. But how could I have dialed the wrong number 53 times? Hello. Uh, who, who's it? Flame? Oh, 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 I'm sorry, darling. Sorry you called me? Oh, I should be hurt. No, 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 it isn't that, my dear. You see, um, I started to call the library. Uh, I was sure I dialed the proper number. And suddenly I find myself talking to uh, Flame. I'm most concerned. About what, Beauregard? Myself. Being so confused and uncertain. Flame. There are weaknesses in my structure. I'm disappointed, darling. I'd hope that I was the only one. Oh, my dear, against you, of course, I'm, I confess I am utterly helpless. But, but no, no, once before I... Another uh, woman? I, quite to the contrary. It was Albert Einstein. Einstein? Yes. I couldn't master his theory of space-time continuum. It, it drove me to the brink of a breakdown. But, of course, you mastered it eventually. Not quite, my dear. Not quite. Ah, oh, now everything is so confused. Oh, you I... poor darling. But you'll feel better by tonight. I'll see you at 8 o'clock sharp, remember? Yes, I'll try to, darling. 8 o'clock sharp. The theory of space-time continuum. Hold it, Dr. Einstein. Here we come.
Uh, this is the night, happy boy. This is what I've been waiting for. Tonight, Mr. Beauregard Bottomley will be destroyed, thanks to uh, Albert Einstein, of course. With a little assist from Flame O'Neill. Uh, yes, yes, she told me she has him so delightfully confused. <laughs> She'll have him even more so before he goes on. <laughs> I tell you, this is my night to howl. Ah! Hey, hey, slow down. There's an audience out there. Oh, Happy. Oh, Gwen. Excuse me, boss. Hello, darling. Hiya, Beauregard. Oh, oh, hello. Good evening. Isn't anyone going to introduce me? Mm, what? Oh, oh, yes, yes, of course. Flame, this is, uh, um, Mr. Burnbridge Waters. Why, Beauregard, this isn't Mr. Waters. This is Happy Hogan. Oh, oh yes. Happy Hogan? How nice. So you're Flame, huh? Any relation to Mr. and Mrs. Blaze from Fire Island? Oh, that's cute. Beauregard, why don't you tell me all those nasty things about Mr. Hogan? I think he's terribly attractive. <laughs> Flame, They Hogan, used to Hogan. call me Gorgeous Hogan when I was wrestling. You'll oh. excuse me. Hey, Gwen, Gwen, wait a minute. Beauregard, isn't he beautiful? Miss O'Neill, this is disgraceful. What on earth are you... I can't that... help myself. It's stronger than me, do you hear me? It's stronger than me. Well, I lied to you, I wasn't home. I had a date well, with you, but I broke it. I couldn't help myself. Well, Flame, Hogan is I... just like Bill. Bill is like but, Steve. But who, Steve is like Jim. I can't who, resist Jim? them. I'm spellbound. I'm like putty in their hands. Flame, what has happened? Beauregard, they're ready for you. Hurry, the show is on. Well, what show? Oh, yes, yes, of course, um, uh, excuse me, please. Beauregard! And now, here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the wealthiest man in the country on paper. And after this question, who knows? Maybe all you'll have left is the paper. Yes, sir, tonight it's $20,971,520 or nothing. You ready, Mr. Bottomley? I said, are you ready? Uh, what for? Oh, 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 yeah, yes. Uh, yes, of course, I, I think so. Okay, here it is. How does Einstein regard the space-time continuum? Well? Uh, um, I'm sorry, I... Uh, you have five more seconds. Um, now, come on and try it. One, um, two, three... Four. Dr. Einstein imagines the continuum to be cylindrical as regards its extension in time, but spherical as regards its extension in space, so that cross-sections at different instants always give a spherical universe of constant size and so of constant mass. Oh, okay, that's correct. That is absolutely correct. God, you did it. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you, Gwen. I suppose Flame has gone. Yes, she has. I'm sorry, Beauregard. Oh, don't be sorry, my dear. I expected it. <laughs> All right. Just a minute. Uh, good evening. Beauregard, no, you can't come in. That is a statement contrary to fact. I am in. Beauregard, 
If you'll just give me a chance Now, to... let me see. Oh, yes, it would probably be in the dressing room. Beauregard, what are you up to? What are you looking oh, here for? Here Here it is. My hairbrush? What do you want with my... Beauregard, let go. No, you can't. You can't, you... That's enough, I think. Uh, sit down. Yes, sir. Oh! Oh, regard, may I stand instead? You may stand. Uh, I I'll take it, my dear. Hello? Uh, Miss O'Neill? Oh, I'm sorry. She's having bottomly trouble. <laughs> now then. You love me, don't you, Flame? Of course. And I know it's silly to ask. You know everything, Beauregard, but won't you tell me? How did you know? Oh, simple matter of deduction, my dear. If you hadn't been in love with me, you'd have stayed to witness my expected downfall. Besides, it's obvious you've been crying. I think you're wonderful. And may I confess my admiration for you? To destroy me with such beautiful torture showed real genius. It was really Mr. Waters' idea. Ah, but the execution was exquisite. Uh, thank you, Beauregard. I did the worst I could. You certainly did. I remember the night you arrived. When I laughed in my sleep. Mm, it twisted my mind. It was effective, wasn't it? It was ecstatic agony. Were you also pretending when I kissed you? Why not kiss me again and find out? <laughs> Oh, flame, my darling. Sit down. Oh, Beauregard, ouch! Still hurts, hmm? Yes, but it's better you came and spanked me, darling, than never to have come at all. No, that... That never occurred to me, my dear. You're a wonderful guy, Beauregard. I'm so ashamed of myself. Oh, you should be, definitely. You know, to be frank, I should be a little ashamed, too. Why? Because I tricked you just as you tricked me. About Einstein? You mean you purposely let me know you were weak on Einstein? <laughs> it just so happens, my dear. I spent an entire season with Einstein in a maze of logarithms. I love you. It's the most dishonest thing I ever heard of. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever forgive you. Oh, ever, my dear? Ever. Well, anyway, to you kiss me again. <laughs> Why, why, why did this have to happen to me? Mr. Waters, you mustn't let yourself go like that. Bottomley hasn't won it all yet. You still have another week to go. Another week. Another week of misery and despair. All right. I'll go down, but I'll go down in a blaze of glory. Next week's show will be our last. Very well, book the Hollywood Bowl. Thousands and thousands of people. Fanfare, pageantry, our modern twilight of the gods. And then, my dear, like Romeo and Juliet, you and I will die together. <laughs> You're nuts. <laughs> Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, in the Hollywood Bowl. Over 30,000 people gathered to watch our last show. And here beside me is the man of the hour, the man of the year, the man of the century, the man who knows everything, Super Brain Bottomley. 
Beauregard, in a moment I will ask you a question, and that answer will determine whether you are worth $40 million or nothing. However, you still have the right to take a lousy $20 million and go home. Uh, no, thank you. Are you ready? Quite ready. All right. May I have your wallet, please? Uh, my, my wallet? Oh, certainly. Here we are. Thank you. Now, let me see. It ought to be right here in... Uh... Yes, here it is. Now then, here is the question. Beauregard Bottomley, what is your social security number? Uh, of course. Uh, nothing could be simpler. My social security number is 452 dash No, no, wait a minute. Is it 452524? No, 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 no. It's 245 dash. Then comes 17. Yeah, yes, that's it. 245 dash 17 dash 6012. Would you mind repeating the number, please? 245 dash 17 dash 6012. Thank you. That is absolutely wrong. What are you, Beauregard? Are you a monster? One hour ago, you lost $40 million. Your love left in a hurry, and yet you just sit there and read. My dear Gwen, I consider it one of the greatest virtues to take defeat with dignity. You are a monster. <laughs> Is it possible your agitation derives from another cause? Such as what? Uh, perhaps your dreamboat doesn't dare the seas of matrimony now that his intended wife's family is broke. Beauregard, that's the meanest thing I ever... Hi, everybody. Ready, Gwen? Stop the music! Stop the music! That's okay with me, just so you let those wedding bells ring. You mean you're being married anyway? Not anyway. By a justice of the peace. I, uh, I told you, Beauregard, just because your flame died out. Uh, come in. Beauregard, aren't you ready yet? Flame. Hurrier will never have breakfast in Las Vegas. Flame, oh, darling. Jingle bells, jingle bells. Oh! Listen to him. It sounds just like Christmas. It is Christmas, and here comes Santa Claus now. Hello, everybody. Why, it's Mr. Waters. Oh, will somebody please tell me where I can put these bottles in this ice bucket? Holy Toledo, he brought champagne. Yes, champagne for Caesar. The beginning of a lifelong supply. Um, that was one of the conditions Mr. Waters had to accept before I agreed to answer the last question wrong. You agreed to answer it wrong. Why? Well, for one thing, Gwen, I wanted neither of us ever to have any doubts. Darling, what else did you touch him for? Oh, a little money, some stock, and I will now have my own television show, Match Wits with Beauregard. Um, sponsored, of course, by Milady Soap. And do you know what the most amazing thing is? I could not have answered that last question correctly. I did not know my social security number. Oh, if I could only think of something very horrible and very legal. Champagne! Champagne! That's right. Champagne for Caesar. Champagne for everyone all around. Ladies, gentlemen, I give you a toast. Nunc est bibendum, meaning... Let's get quietly loaded, shall we?
And that was Mr. Ronald Coleman in the Leslie Hoff painting from the Halls of Ivy and Champagne for Caesar from the Screen Guild Theatre. I do hope you enjoyed those. Well, that is it from me for a while. I will be disappearing into the ether for a month or so now to finish work on the third and final instalment of The Adventures of Alfred Hitchcock, available exclusively to those of you subscribed to The Secret History of Hollywood. I must once again reiterate that the specials no longer live here. They are only available if you subscribe to The Secret History of Hollywood, so run along and do so if you haven't already. Part 3 is shaping up to be quite something, and I'm very much looking forward to bringing it to you. Also, as I mentioned, I would be eternally grateful to receive any votes you might have lying around for the UK Podcaster Award, so please click the link in the show notes and vote for Attaboy Clarence and The Secret History of Hollywood. I swear it only takes a moment. Well, the curtain is falling. The janitor is sweeping the floor to the left of me. It just remains for me to say a very fond farewell to you all, and I'll be back with you as soon as I can. Do take care of yourselves, and Attaboy Clarence and I will be back with you very soon. Bye for now. I should say not. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.